Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to have a special conversation today with State Representative Carl Sherman Sr. Uh, from DeSoto, uh, who is uh, a remarkable public servant, uh, a personal friend as well, and uh, a, a real agent for reconciliation and justice in our community. Carl, welcome to Good God. Thank you, Pastor Mason. Uh, George, I, I really love you as a person, as a human being. Uh, you are God sent and just grateful for your thoughtful leadership and uh, not just in the church, but beyond the walls of the church. Uh, just uh, excited every time I see you uh, at various events, uh, whether it be civic or community, uh, minded events. Uh, you are really an ambassador, I believe, for Christ and uh, showing the light beyond the church walls. So thank you. Well, and thank you for having me. Sure. Well, coming from you, that means a lot to me. And let's just start there, though, uh, because you, you called me pastor and I can do the same to you. I introduced you as a state representative. But, you know, th this program is called Good God. And I like to connect the dots there. Uh, that is to say, uh, here you are a, a, a pastor yourself uh, of a Church of Christ uh, in DeSoto, and you are also serving as a politician, a, a political figure. So in a sense, what we're talking about here is that your faith uh, has uh, connected you uh, to public life in a way that combines the God and the good. And uh, so I, I'm interested in your sense of calling. Uh, I think we can all, as ministers, and many people who are uh, watching or listening, understand the language of a call to ministry. Uh, but when you think of that call being connected to public service, uh, how do you connect those uh, two things in your own experience? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think uh, that a lot of people wrestle uh, with that. And first, I'd like to just begin with uh, the premise that I believe when we walk by faith, we're always uh, walking according to the calling on our lives. God has a purpose for each and every one of us. And uh, I pray that he delights in my ways. Uh, you know, knowing that your steps, your cadence, uh, should be ordered by the Lord. Uh, it takes great uh, meditation, I believe, uh, sense of uh, understanding that even though you may be uh, in the pulpit uh, as a pastor, uh, you still, in fact, even more so, I believe, you've got to recalibrate every now and then spiritually. And uh, that means you know, you have to be willing to ask yourself questions. Why am I doing this? Why at this time am I doing this? Is God calling me to do this? And I believe God is not inside of a closet. Uh, the God that we serve uh, calls us uh, to go into other territories. Uh, often, uh, if, uh, you know, you look at scripturally, uh, we have many uh, examples of men and women who uh, were timid or perhaps uh, 
reluctant to answer the call, and God had a way of getting their attention uh, from individuals like Moses, uh, who uh, seemed to be an introvert. Uh, I can relate. I'm an introvert, and I don't like politics, uh, which, you know, uh, anytime uh, I've campaigned, Uh, My wife complains about the fact that I tell people I don't like politics, but I don't. Uh, And uh, my press secretary, uh, former press secretary, said it uh, in a meeting one day. She says, sir, you don't like politics, but politics likes you. And I think really it's uh, I don't like politics, but I love people. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes uh, when the calling happens, it's uncomfortable. It stretches you. Uh, to do something you don't want to do. But in the end, if you're the same in public as you are in private, uh, you can uh, do those different missions that God is calling you to do. Uh, It's so important to maintain the authenticity of the spiritual uh, walk that he has with you. So I don't I don't run away from, uh, you know, the calling that Christ has on my life, even Uh, Though he's called me to serve in the Texas House of Representatives, uh, I I was my first session very, very depressed when I came back because God is popular on the House floor to talk about, but he's not necessarily popular uh, to really be about. And, um, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm one that believes in, uh, I believe in local control uh, because I serve a God who uh, informs me in his word. Uh, that we are all free moral agents. Uh, so uh, it's not uh, it's it's not my duty to um, you know push religion on someone. It's my duty, uh, I believe, to be an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ, as as he says in Acts one and one, he came and uh, he uh, came to do and teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the doing comes first. The example comes first. And I pray to God that uh, I'm, I'm doing it. You know, you mentioned Moses and, of course, the prophets like uh, Jonah and others who had a reluctance uh, about the call uh, that, that was theirs. But I think sometimes those of us who read the Bible and who approach life from a faith perspective fail to recognize that the call to Moses and to Jonah and to Jeremiah and to others was actually motivated by uh, injustice in the world. Uh, that that, that, the, that these, these calls were about uh, bringing about God's righteousness in a public life, in the way people operated and often speaking to powers, uh, whether it's the Pharaoh or even the King of Israel or others, and, and, and changing the way people related to one another to make the world a more just and peaceful place. Well, you can't really divide up in, in the Bible the spiritual then from the political. Uh, and so here you are serving in both capacities. Yeah, you know, uh, George, you... Uh you summed it up very well. I mean, it, it is, uh, there, there is this paradox in, in uh, American politics, I believe, uh, as well as uh, the church, where we compartmentalize uh, our, our lives and our way of life. 
And, and Jesus said, of course, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So there is a certain uh, behavior uh, that should uh, permeate in our lives, no matter where we are in our lives. If we see injustice, we ought to be uh, bold about speaking up against it. Uh, right. And we can't just be stand to just stand by and watch these things happen. That's why, you know, that's how I first got to know you, uh, was your compassion uh, for uh, the family of uh, Botham Jean and, and uh, standing up for uh, the injustice that was done, the loss. There are so many people who uh, were quiet on the sidelines and if it does not, if we can't rationalize it, we will often uh, blame the victim uh, as opposed to uh, understanding that maybe there's something wrong with our system. And, uh, you know. All right, let's, I, I go, think, let's go there, yeah. Carl, because I think this is an important transition for us in this conversation because, yes, we had a tragedy that occurred when a police officer, Amber Geiger, entered the wrong apartment uh, of Botham Jean, and uh, he thought that she was uh, invading and she, she thought he was uh, in her apartment and uh, she fired her weapon and, and killed him. Now, uh, we, we, can, we can call that a tragedy on the one hand, uh, but on the other hand, we recognize that there are things that led into that in terms of police training and the use of firearms and, and uh, uh, unconscious bias uh, that was, was all at work likely in, in bringing that to pass. So rather than just mourning as a community, uh, going through the legal process that ended up with a conviction of Amber Geiger, uh, you took it a step further uh, as a state rep you proposed, and in a very divided legislature, you got past the Botham Jean Pact. So you moved from street protests to policy in the state capitol to change things on a more permanent basis that would prevent these kinds of things from happening again. Talk to us about that move from the streets to policy and what the Botham Jean Act uh, actually accomplishes. I, uh, I, I want to refer to you uh, invariably as pastor, uh, you know, uh, going from the pulpit to the pew and protest to policy uh, is one that uh, it, it's a process in which you have to reconcile uh, the human issues that really uh, affect uh, our day-to-day -day lives, especially those who do not have a voice. And you have to be able to shepherd that process in which you are measured in your approach, uh, which, you know, really uh, have a lot to do with having your steps ordered by the Lord, I, I believe. You know, Scripture says in Philippians 4 and 6, be anxious for nothing, right? In all things, giving prayer and supplication, thanksgiving. So all these things have to be done in a measured way. And it starts with relationships. Every change starts with relationship. Paul talks about having the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, 
And I believe wholeheartedly the reason that we have to have a ministry of reconciliation is because as human beings, we invariably break things. We always break things, you know, and so we're 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 constantly uh, offended by things, and and uh, we have to be careful. So I began with the approach of building relationships and reaching out, uh, reaching uh, to the other side uh, politically, and starting to have uh, I started to have breakfast and lunch and uh, during the interim. And then we mm -hmm. talked about what was important to us, and we talked about our mutual interest and uh, building those relationships, getting uh, the most powerful union in the United States are police un unions. And uh, while we didn't get many of the police uh, law enforcement support, we were able to get some. Uh, the Texas Sheriff's Association, which I'm grateful for. Uh, many of the unions actually worked against us and uh, told uh, the Republican members uh, that this was a bad bill. And they kept going uh, to their offices, telling them uh, that, uh, you know, some were, were bold to say that I was a bad person. Uh, and uh, I was grateful for the relationships because those uh, fine Republican colleagues of mine said, uh, you know, uh, you're not welcome in this office. Uh, I know Carl Sherman. He's not a bad person. Uh, and, you know, I, I was grateful. They actually came and told me, wow. uh, shared that with me. Uh, and so we were able to get the support, uh, understanding right. that our fight is not with flesh and blood. Uh, the pastors like yourself and others who were courageous uh, to come and say this is about creating systemic accountability in law enforcement. Right. This is good for uh, the profession of law enforcement as well as uh, for our communities uh, that we have HB 929, Bose Law, affectionately named, uh, and uh, 929 uh, simply requires that police must activate their body cams and they cannot turn off their body cams during an investigation. So important. And I worked with uh, constitutional lawyers like Lee Merritt uh, on making sure that uh, the things that the provisions that were essential to the bill uh, were maintained in the bill. And there was compromise uh, in uh, shaping that bill. And, and we got it. We got it done by the grace of God. I think people would be interested to know if they don't already just how much of a, an institutionalist you are. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, some people polarize uh, in a way and say people who are uh, working for social justice, for, you know, racial justice and the like, uh, automatically are really wanting to tear down our law enforcement, our institutions, uh, they're, they're wanting to, to, when you say hold accountable, what you really mean is destroy civic uh, responsibility and order and uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but the truth of the matter is you've spent your entire life as a city manager, as a mayor, uh, part of the business community, the chambers of commerce and and, and, and other sorts of organizations that are built around keeping the social fabric intact. So, you, you know, you, you really are an anomaly in this sense that, you know, when people come and, and think, you know, you, 
here's Carl at a protest. Uh, he must be one of those guys. Well, actually, <laughs> things things have to be pretty bad for you to be in the streets protesting because you're normally in the boardrooms and in the corridors of power trying to figure out how to hold things together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. It's, uh, it, it is very uh, disconcerting for me uh, to uh, be, uh, you know, outside of the boardroom. Uh, however, the Spirit of the Lord uh, calls us uh, to stand up for injustices. You know, there, you know, you think about uh, the George Floyd tragedy and how that awakened the conscience of America, I believe. I, I received so many calls from uh, many of my friends uh, in the pulpit, as well as uh, the business world uh, that are white, and uh, they were reaching out sincerely, wondering what could we do uh, to affect change. And my thought on that is, you know, uh, America has a tendency to want to rush to reconciliation without truth. Uh, and we experience what I call compassion fatigue. Uh, so after a while, you know, after buying all the Black Arthur books and, uh, you know, trying to get a better understanding, uh, have a sense of empathy about things, we have to really understand that George Floyd was not an aberration. Before George Floyd, there was Rodney King. Uh, before that, there was James Byrd. Uh, and, and before Tamir Rice uh, was killed, a 12-year-old that was killed in park playing by himself, uh, an officer drives up in less than five seconds, kills him, in fact, two seconds, he pulls his revolver out and kills a 12-year-old kid who's playing by himself. Before that, there was Santo, uh, Santos Rodriguez, 13 years Dallas. old, in Dallas, Texas, pulled out of his home, out of his home. His parents couldn't do anything and put in the back of a squad car with his brother, David, and uh, the officer played Russian roulette with him. They accused him of stealing $8 out of a... Uh, vending machine, which was later found to be untrue. Uh, we have to realize that in America, there are no white Santos Rodriguez's. There are no white Botham Johns. There are no white George Floyds. There are no white Tatiana Jeffersons, no white Tamir Rice, no white Jonathan Price, no white Michael Dean. And the list goes on and on and on. And we have to do something about it, but we cannot reconcile these issues until we face the truth. And so while I love our system of governance, and it is for me, uh, I have a fidelity uh, to having societal norms uh, be the standard that that we cannot have people just act, uh, you know, and uh, uh, you know, make their own rules uh, and, and have these militias. Uh, we really have to own this. This is who we are. There is no other industrialized nation that has a thousand people killed by police every year with firearms, 50 with stun guns every year. If they have three in a year in Europe, mm -hmm. they're protesting. Right. Uh, and, and here we have three a day. Right. And so uh, we have to recognize that if we are a Judeo-Christian society, 
we have to, you know, realize that prayer, when people say you have our prayer and thoughts, our thoughts and prayers are with you, that's important. But before he says uh, the prayers of the righteous availeth much, the fervent, effectual prayers of the righteous availeth much, he says just before that, George, confess your faults one to another. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get to the truth part. And uh, there's too much denial. There we go. Uh, Carl, so um, as we as we think about where we are in Texas right now, getting to the truth of these things is something that it seems a lot of people are trying to avoid. Uh, the teaching of critical race theory is a red herring, it seems to me, in our public schools because nobody's really teaching critical race theory to children. They are trying to teach a fair accounting of the racial history of our country. And, uh, but uh, at, at the same time, we have, you know, uh, a, a pro- proliferation of, uh, of guns and, and a kind of open season uh, where people are unaccountable for their weapons. And, uh, and now we have uh, an abortion policy in uh, law in Texas that allows for what amounts to the rewarding of vigilantes uh, in, in our society. What in the world is happening? I mean, you, you are a, a person who believes in the system, but you were also one of those who, who left the chambers and went to Washington, D.C. in order not to have a quorum. And so, you know, where are we, Carl, and what what do you think uh, is is happening in our Texas culture that is preventing us from having uh, a a greater sense of unity around truthfulness that leads to reconciliation? Yeah, well, you know, George, I I think there are three things I'd just, just like to address about that. First, the quorum break, uh, you know, that was something that none of us, I believe, wanted to do, but we felt that we had to do. Uh, When we looked at the issue of, uh, you know, many uh, citizens losing their right to vote or the freedom to vote, uh, it was important. When we considered uh, the imminent uh, concern about uh, gerrymandering, uh, we had to uh, deny a quorum. Uh, the first time we denied a quorum, uh, we uh, went to uh, a local church there in Austin. I led our caucus in a prayer, uh, and we were hoping and praying that that would, you know, uh, create the results that uh, we wanted to uh, have come about. Abraham Lincoln, you know, years, you know, century ago. Uh, did it uh, when he was in the Illinois State House. Uh, you know, he jumped out of his second story window. Uh, none of us did that. Uh, we caught a plane, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we have presidents for this uh, in order to, when something rises uh, as an erosion of our democracy, we had to respond. Uh, why is this happening right now? I believe that there are those who feel threatened uh, by the shift in our demographics, uh, that uh, with 4 million new Texans 
uh, in Texas over the last decade, and 95% of them being people of color, uh, this creates some uh, anxiety for some, uh, some demographic anxiety that shift. Uh, and some people will do anything to ensure uh, that they maintain that control uh, that they are accustomed to having. And so, you know, it, it's human nature, I think, uh, to uh, try and preserve your power and look at life as though this is your fiefdom. Uh, unfortunately, we have a history of uh, clothing that in religion too. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Jesus says in John 18, 36, that this kingdom, his kingdom is not of this world. And uh, his servants, his children don't fight uh, like the world fights. Right, uh, right. But unfortunately, that's what's happening on the house floor. And that's why bills, uh, draconian bills like HB 1927 were passed, the permitless carry bill where all law enforcement came to the Capitol, uh, so much so uh, that it looked like police headquarters uh, <laughs> with all these police chiefs and rank and file uh, that implored the legislative body to please not pass right. uh, permitless carry. They said it would make their jobs uh, more dangerous. And uh, despite that, the party that said they backed the blue ignored the blue Right. and pass the bill. And it just seems that there may be a connection, and I don't know, but you know, the NRA, before we started our session, announced that they were moving their headquarters from New York to Texas. Right. And you know, these, you know, scripture tells us that we should avoid, uh, you know, avoid the appearance uh, of evil. So there are just some things that we have to be guarded on, on doing, but they passed the bill. And, in a, you know, in our state, we have to recognize uh, that while we have aspirational uh, ideals about how we are all equal, we don't seem to live up to it. And it shows in our desire to erase some parts of history. Right. ignore some parts of history and contribution and uh, I think eras that we've gone through, but yet highlight others. I mean, you look at the monuments and statues. I've said this before, but but I think it, it deserves to be repeated. You know, we have tens and tens, tens of thousands of monuments, of statues, of street names, of parks and schools and universities that are named after uh, Confederate heroes who practice genocide. Right. And yet, conversely, we have only 31 monuments and statues of the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, and not all of those are in the United States. Right. And our Lord's currency has his image on it. So, you know, we fight to keep these things up because we hold them in high esteem. And yet we say one thing, Jesus says in Matthew 15 and eight, they draw nearer to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Our heart is on the you know, erection of, of Sam Houston and, and others, Lamar, uh, and instead of 
recognizing that those individuals, uh, you know, should not be held in high esteem for what they've done. Well, Carl, um, I think you and I could talk about these things all day. We've we've come, I think, to the end of our, our time together, and it's appropriate, probably, given the light coming in through the window of my room. I'm already very white, uh, but, <laughs> but I'm disappearing, I think, in the light here in, in the cloud. Uh, for those who are watching this and not just listening to it, uh, the contrast is great, but this, but actually... Uh, our hearts are one, and uh, yeah. I thank you so much for being a great partner in faith and in public life and a, a great advocate for justice, and uh, we look forward to continued work together in the future. Thank you so much, George. I appreciate you. God bless you. Great. Take care. Thank you. You too. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.